Right now, Olga is doing some investigations. She was reportedly in a library someplace, doors closed. I want to introduce my buddy, Scott Lucas, and we have the podcast, Europhile, going to be stepping in for the next few episodes. Uh, our spaces is called Europhile at Six. Uh, today, our focus is on Ukraine, and we have two very, very special guests, uh, the first guest is Olga Tokariuk, and Olga is a non-resident fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis, that's SIPA. You know, her work is fundamental also as a journalist. Hi, Monique. Hi, Scott. Hello, Alexander. Our second guest is Alexander Kara, and he's a diplomat, multinational relations at the Maidan in Ukraine, and an advisor um, to the minister of defense. Alexander Kara, how are you today? Perfect, thank you. And how are you? Great. Alexander and Olga, we are almost at six months of Russia's aggression, okay, renewed aggression against Ukraine. And I'd like to begin with a very general, okay, your general reflections of where we are today. And let's say, had you, could you have imagined that it had gone this far for so long, let's say up until now. Alexander, let's start with you and then Olga. Okay, I'd like your reflections as well. Alexander? Well, uh, first of all, let me start with a bit uh, a remote uh, event that happened uh, 14 years uh, ago. Uh, I mean, uh, Russia Russia provoked aggression against Georgia. And at that time, the world, the world just swallowed uh, this aggression, and uh, which is uh, well absolutely unacceptable in terms of the liberal order and uh, no, securing, uh, or uh, at, at least if you are talking about the um, let's say overcoming on the uh, legacy of the Soviet uh, past and so on and so on. And secondly, uh, which is most uh, dangerous thing that happened. Uh, after a couple a couple of years, the United States reset its relations with Russia, and then uh, Angela Merkel in Germany, as a powerhouse of uh, Europe, uh, pushed a, a partnership for modernization program that allowed Russia to modernize first and foremost their military, and then addict uh, the whole of Europe on gas, oil, and Russian money. So uh, the events that we see this year. I mean, the all-out war that Russia unleashed on Ukraine uh, were laid out uh, right in uh, 14 years ago because the, the West in the whole uh, international community didn't act uh, in the proper manner. Uh, secondly, uh, which is more important, uh, um, the most important thing that happened uh, during these weeks, but it's more, it's sort of a, a sign of where the situation is going. Uh, it's a report of Amnesty Inter of International, which uh, brought outrage in Ukraine uh, for, for some reason. But what's important that the uh, leadership of the organization, even though they apologized before Ukrainians, they didn't, uh, let's say, recall their report, providing Russia with an excuse to continue shelling Ukrainian uh, civil infrastructure, schools, uh, hospitals, and other things. So uh, this thing is something really um, terrible. Uh, that is happening and is shaping the, the, the whole situation. And one of the uh, members of the board of Amnesty, 
uh, was filmed by CBS uh, talking about arms supply to Ukraine, which, as, as she said, there is no knowledge of where these arms are going. But at the same time, on the second frame, frame there was a uh, quote that uh, up to 30% uh, of the arms uh, find out its way to the front line and nobody knows uh, where the rest. And it's a dangerous, uh, let's say, narrative of that uh, stop the war, meaning stop supplying arms uh, for Ukraine, and, and certainly it will uh, mean that we, are, we will be not able to defend ourselves. So this campaign is terrifying, uh, and it's important because it was on some time, but uh, we will see a new push, and especially before this uh, winter crisis. And possibly I, I should rem- uh, recall, or I should bring... Uh, the CPAC in the United States and the Trump speech and all those uh, Trumpinians who are uh, voicing, uh, let's say, their dissatisfaction with the Obama administration, or sorry, Biden administration uh, policies, and they, they would be eager to uh, stop this war and agree uh, on something with Russia at the expense of Ukraine. So all those things are really threatening us while we see our cities being uh, demolished, uh, while, while Russians are reinforcing their forces in the south. Uh, and certainly we see a lot of destruction and torture and killing and other things, and it's not going to stop with, uh, well, with, with this moratorium or stop of providing us with arms. So all those things are really worrying us uh, at the moment. Yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed. Olga, um, your reflections, okay, on these past months, and you put out a tweet, okay, um, where you were talking about, I believe, the renewed Okay, bombardments and different things like that, you know, uh, just recently. Can you talk about your reflections first? And then we'll also get into a lot of what, okay, Alexander's brought up, but I'm sure that this is a really important point with all of the Ukrainian, okay, um, let's say effort, the war effort itself, is that what is happening in the disinformation and influence ops, because these are extremely important right now because they're aimed towards the West. But Olga, let's go with your reflections first. Yes. Well, uh, I think uh, if, you know, we are summing up and kind of analyzing this six months of war, of full-scale war, uh, Russian war against Ukraine, I think several conclusions can be drawn. So the first conclusion is that Ukraine didn't collapse. Ukraine is standing, Ukraine is resisting, and Ukraine is actually regaining some lost territory, which is very important. So I'm not only referring to uh, Kyiv, Chernihiv, Sumer region that has been liberated back in April, much to the surprise of a lot of, you know, pundits in the West who were predicting the collapse of Kyiv, if not in three days, but then in several weeks, who were um, uh, speaking at length about this convoy, Russian long uh, mile convoy approaching Kyiv. So it turned out, you know, uh, in fact, that Russians had huge problems with their military. But uh, not only this, is that the strengths of the Ukrainian resistance of both Ukrainian military and also civilians were also heavily underestimated in the West. So it not only is about, you know, the misjudgment and misreading of the strengths of Russian armed forces, but also the underestimation of the Ukrainian resistance and of Ukrainian capabilities to stand up to Russian aggression on all levels of society, not just militarily. So I think like this is the conclusion number two, you know, first Ukrainian collapse, two, uh, uh, the capabilities of Russia were overestimated and the capabilities of Ukraine were underestimated. And I think, you know, Departing from these two conclusions, we can somehow 
shape the policy and also the approach to what happens next. I think uh, this should be kept in mind uh, when uh, taking the decisions in the West on what to do next. Because, uh, uh, you know, judging on what has been happening in Ukraine in these six months, but also in the past eight years, we can say with confidence that Russia will not stop until it is stopped. Russia will continue, uh, you know, um, destroying um, Ukrainian cities, civilian targeting and civilian objects in the territories that are not under its control and then on the territories that are under its control, hopefully temporarily, it will continue uh, even more repressive campaign of terror, of intimidation, of kidnappings, extrajudicial killings. You know, we, we do not know exactly what is happening in the occupied uh, Kherson region and other regions um, of southern Ukraine. But uh, the reports that we are getting from there are really chilling. You know, they, they make the blood uh, chill in our veins because these are the reports of people going missing of, uh, you know, um, illegal detention centers where people are held for weeks and months without any due trial, where they are heavily tortured, abused, killed. We also see what Russians are doing in Donbass, uh, you know, these recent images of Ukrainian prisoners of war who uh, are castrated, um, a, a horrible image that emerged recently of a, a Ukrainian Probably soldier, we don't know, uh, his head cut off and impaled in uh, the city of Popasna in Luhansk region. So these are, you know, terrible atrocities that, um, that are happening on a daily basis and they are bound to happen, uh, until Russia is stopped. And I think what is actually, you know, uh, maybe missing in the understanding of this war, um, outside that somehow there is this kind of, uh, self, uh, you know, um, how should I say, um, uh, this thinking that, uh, well, okay, it's only limited to Ukraine, you know, this uh, Russia will only limit itself to Ukraine. It will not dare to attack NATO countries. It will not dare to go further, uh, which I think, you know, it's, um, it's a flawed and it's uh, a very kind of naive line of thinking because we've seen that Russia's appetite only grows if it is not uh, countered, if it's not... Uh, you know, uh, it, if it does not meet a strong and forceful response. And already those voices that you and Alexander have mentioned in the West who are starting, uh, you know, to doubt whether we should continue supplying Ukraine with weapons, whether, you know, we should um, somehow make some kind of a deal with Russia or, I don't know, um, also in the energy sphere where Russia is using its blackmail very heavily. Just remember the case with the turbine from Canada, right? To, to Germany, which Russians still didn't which still, claim, yeah. which is still stuck there. So it was just Germany, a, is it not? Yes, yeah, it is. It, it, it was just a yeah. pretext, actually, for Russians to, to test the reaction of the West and to test whether the reaction is strong or weak. And, and they see this weakness and they see the weakness also in the statements of Amnesty International, which illustrate that, you know, even the international organizations that are supposed to be defending human rights, they fail to distinguish, you know, the, between the aggressor and the victim. They, they put this, uh, moral, um, immoral, I would say, equivalence between the aggressor and the victim. And for Russia, these are just signs, again, of the moral, uh, uh, you know, uh, decadence of the West, or at least what Russia perceives as a moral decadence of the West, and of inability of uh, the West to stand up to its values and to defend its values. So, um, 
I think we are entering this new stage of war where one, uh, Ukrainians will uh, try to re- recapture more of the occupied territory, causing uh, huge logistical problems for Russia. We are seeing that already in the south, where Ukraine, with the help of HIMARS and other uh, advanced weaponry that it received from the West, is really disrupting Russia, Russian supply uh, routes. It's destroying Russian ammunition depots. It's causing huge problems for Russians in the south. This is, uh, I think, is also somehow underreported maybe in in the foreign media of you know how successful these operations are and how important these weapons that Ukraine receives from the west are for you know to to uh, deoccupy the south of Ukraine to to uh, defeat uh, uh, Russians there to disrupt their logistics uh, so Ukraine is doing that we'll see more of that and we'll see more hybrid war tactics from Russia so Russia will be targeting civilians more in, simultaneously Russia will be, uh, you know, launching um, uh, terrorist attacks uh, because this is what it is doing on the, uh, the on all part on all you know Ukraine's territory. Russia will resort to nuclear blackmail as it is doing now in Nerhodar nuclear power plant, and Russia will of course you know uh, step up its influence operation, de- disinformation operations in the West, uh, using uh, its assets, using um, you know even those who might not be overtly like you know paid by the kremlin but there are a lot of uh, useful idiots we call them like this that russia can mobilize yeah yeah i mean they've used a lot of these people in the past right we've known about the influence operations and also the capture economic and political capture across europe so a lot of these people and i'm speaking from a position here where uh, in my own country they don't really need Okay, to send all they do is is they know exactly how to operate and what to say, the narratives that will work on the Italian public, what is the right thing, and they've been trained over years, and this is how okay, this is how uh, they are to um, influence what is going on you know, uh, within Italy to make it a let's say a weaker partner, okay, for Ukraine. Uh, Draghi's government is, has actually put out the fourth weapons package, which is fantastic. Uh, but we don't know what's going to go on. I mean, you know, uh, there's a lot of talk that the influence operation of bringing down the, the Draghi government is actually real. So this could happen across. These are very, very important. What we're talking about now is absolutely you no know, fundamental because on, on the one side of the war, both Alexander and both Olga, right? You guys have talked about what is happening on the ground, what Ukraine is trying to, and then there's also the other side, the partnerships, the alliance, okay, of countries that need to be united and keep united. But I see, Scott, you've got like a little question in your your eyes, for sure. (laughs) Scott's going to come in with one of those fantastic questions right about now. Go ahead. I'm just going to sort of look back before looking forward if I can and get the benefit First, Alexander, then Olga on some reflections. Alexander, I, I know we're not supposed to deal in counterfactuals, but I still want to put this to you. Whether Putin overstepped, if we look back six months down the line, in other words, if Putin had gone in and simply gone for the more limited operation of trying to seize all of the Donbass in eastern Ukraine and try to take part of the south to link Donbass with Crimea, do you think the international community might have accepted that? They might have actually stood back? In other words, did Putin miscalculate by trying to go for Kiev and trying to topple the Zelensky government immediately? 
Well, uh, thank you. It's a good question, and we can elaborate uh, for a long period of time on that. Uh, First of all, uh, Putin miscalculated back in 2014, because if at that time he was using the so-called soft power, but you know in the uh, totalitarian uh, states there is no such a thing like uh, soft power, there is propaganda, subversion, and other things. And I'm talking about not just Russia, but China as well. So uh, he just failed uh, to present Ukrainians with the bright future of all Slavic uh, brothers uh, living in, uh, you know, in one country as, as the Russian Federation and so on and so on. That's why he turned to the brutal force. And uh, he was uh, stupid enough uh, just to portray that it's a civil war. Uh, and he didn't, uh, let's say, finish or didn't solve the Ukrainian uh, problem right away. So we had some time to prepare. So that's why when he uh, unleashed his force uh, on the 24th of February, we've been prepared uh, pretty much, and the West was prepared. Uh, if you have a look at the, the uh, timeline, uh, back in October or November, the United States were sure that uh, Putin is crazy enough to proceed with his uh, all, 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 let's say, full-fledged invasion of Ukraine. And unfortunately, they miscalculated Ukrainian strengths and they, they decided to uh, strengthen our special operation forces, not the uh, armed forces in general. Because if they had such a weaponry that we have now, like Heimers, uh, Harvitzers and others, uh, we would be in much better position and we would not uh, let uh, Russians to conquer some more lands. And now it's uh, difficult for us to, to reconquer it. So, yes, he miscalculated. Uh, and I believe uh, in the long run, uh, we, will, we are going to see uh, what we call the empiral hour stretch. So he's losing his resources. He lost a lot of the best uh, prepared men. I mean, the special forces, the VDV and other guys, uh, the, the best tanks and other equipment that he had. And now with this, uh, uh, especially with uh, the export control measures being imposed on Russia, uh, he will not be able to replenish all those uh, wonder waffles that he, he, he was proud of. And the, the, the only thing that they have is the blackmail, nuclear blackmail that he is trying to use uh, directly. I mean, talking about all those uh, uh, new missiles, uh, anti- uh, I mean, ICBMs uh, that he's uh, going to deploy uh, with uh, a new project with Belarus that uh, some Iskanders, uh, nuclear capable Iskanders might be deployed to Belarus. And certainly, as that Olga mentioned, uh, uh, Zaporizhia uh, uh, nuclear power plant, uh, because now he's blackmailing the whole world, not just Ukraine, not just our neighbors, but uh, the whole world. So that's why, yes, he miscalculated uh, and he miscalculated the reaction of the West. Unfortunately, it's not as strong as we wish uh, here in Ukraine because we are fighting the, with the biggest uh, conventional uh, power, military power in uh, Europe. Uh, even though it's weak from the uh, fighting point of view, but they have a lot of uh, tanks, uh, jets, and other things, and we don't have enough uh, support from the West to just to to be on the equal footing. Not to mention the uh, overhandling power to to regain our territories. So that's why I'm worrying about all those left-leaning uh, voices that it's better to stop providing Ukraine with arms, uh, and, and, and the situation will will be resolved somehow uh, by peaceful diplom- diplomatic means. There is no room for diplomacy at the moment. The only room for diplomacy now is for Putin because he might think that uh, uh, he's run out of time and he has not enough resources to uh, finish the Ukrainian business at this moment. So he will need some kind of uh, operational pause. That's why he might 
push uh, this diplomatic uh, issue uh, through Turkey, for example, because Turks are talking, no, we, you signed a grain uh, deal with Ukraine. Why uh, shouldn't you talk to the Russians and, and uh, find a truce or a ceasefire agreement uh, possible to sign? I'll come back to that in a moment, but Olga, I also wanted to look back on another front because um, you've got a tweet pinned at the top of your Twitter line, and I go back to it every day, which is on March the 1st, you said, Ukraine will win. Now, that was five days after the invasion, and it was after, on the very first night of the invasion, Monique and I and others were sitting there thinking, the Russians are going to take Hostomel Airport. They're going to move into Kiev, and we have to face that. You, you kept the faith, but I wanted to ask you specifically about whether you still have been surprised by um, President Zelensky. You know, still a relatively young political leader, less than three years in office. We know that there were a number of officials, government and military officials who appear to have been collaborating with the Russians. He had to deal with that. Were you surprised at the amount of resolve that came from Zelensky and from the top of the government in those opening days? Yeah, that's a very good question, Scott. And in fact, you know, that piece that uh, I have pinned in my Twitter feed, I wrote it back in November. So, you know, this wasn't something that I uh, said after Russians launched their full-scale invasion, but uh, already, you know, it was like the clouds were gathering back in uh, in uh, fall last year. But still, you know, it was still relevant. And I think that piece is still relevant because in it, I outline why Russia attacked Ukraine, because it's because of Ukraine's progress, because of Ukraine's reforms, moving closer and closer to be a democracy, to be a prosperous state, very different from Russia. And that, what I think is the main motivation behind uh, this Russian full-scale invasion. And also, I, I said in that piece that Ukrainians will resist, that Ukrainians will not give up, that they will fight, and that Russians will need to resort to huge scale of repressions, like Stalin-era repressions to crush the Ukrainian spirit. And that's actually what we are seeing now in the occupied territories. They are really using the Stalin uh, playbook methods to crush the Ukrainian resistance there. So, uh, you know, and answering your question, whether I was surprised by um, the strength of President Zelensky and his reaction. Well, in fact, uh, I expected such, you know, strong resistance and resilience uh, on behalf of the Ukrainian society, on behalf of the Ukrainian and military forces. But yes, I must admit that I was surprised uh, by how well President Zelensky and the government in general of Ukraine handled this situation, at least, you know, in the initial phase of it. So, um, President Zelensky, as you said, is not a very experienced politician. He's been in office for less than three years at the moment of Russian full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And in the very first days and hours, I think, uh, uh, of this uh, invasion, he he has done several things that defined the course of this war and that kind of, you know, defined also this, gave uh, an example to both Ukrainians and the world of what Ukraine is and how Ukrainians will fight. So, of course, the um, uh, famous phrase that I need ammunition, not a ride, is something that became, you know, a motto of, of this war of Ukraine resistance. We now see it printed on T-shirts. We see it, you know, appearing on graffitis all over the world. And I think in this phrase, there is so much uh, because it's really uh, with this simple phrase, several words, he managed to 
convey the message that Ukrainians are not going to give up, that Ukrainians will stand up, that they will resist, because this is an existential battle. You know, it's not a battle for some part of Ukrainian territory or, you know, um, something minor. This is really a battle for survival of Ukraine as an independent state and of Ukrainians as, you know, uh, a group, as as a nation, because uh, Russians make it clear. And the more war drags on, the more clear messages are coming from Russia that this is about the extermination of Ukrainians as a nation. This is about the destruction of Ukraine as an independent state. And then once they've done with Ukraine, they will move uh, further and further to, you know, attack other countries that they uh, see as enemies. And basically, it's all uh, all, uh, demo- all democracies. It's just that some democracies they perceive as weaker, so they can attack them. And some other democracies, um, you know, they, are, they do not dare, at least for now, to do that. But their rhetoric, it clearly indicates that's the direction that they, they want to take. And coming back to, you know, President Zelensky and his role, I think it's also twofold. So not just President Zelensky is the one who kind of motivates the Ukrainians, who inspires them to resist, but it's actually the other way around too, and it's very important. I think one of the strengths of Zelensky is that he's able to listen to the people, to capture the mood of the society and to convey that in his own actions and rhetoric. And of course, that combined with the very skilled communication team, with the work of Ministry of Foreign Affairs, who've done a great job in addressing, you know, in tailoring the message of Ukraine to different audiences audiences when president was speaking to the parliaments in different countries he had uh, the same message but expressed it with different words citing some historical examples from the history of the country that he was addressing to uh, and, and that you know that's an amazing also communication job but i think like what really uh, kind of what is special about zelensky is not only he is leading the people but he's also expressing somehow the spirit and the resistance and the resilience of Ukrainians. So it works both ways. And that's very important. Thanks so much. So we've covered sort of the past. I wonder if we could look forward. Let me just ask each of you about a couple of the military fronts, looking at it, say, from the southern front right now. Well, uh, it's difficult to predict uh, what's going to happen uh, for the reason. From one hand, uh, President Zelensky needs to deliver something to the Ukrainian public and to the Western bakers uh, that we are successfully using and employing all those means provided to us, like Heimers, Harvardists, and other stuff. From the other hand, uh, our military so far were wise enough not to be driven by political agenda. And they've been uh, trying to push slowly Russians because, you know, they understand that we, uh, we have less uh, manpower. We have less, uh, uh, let's say, uh, tanks and other uh, offensive equipment. That's why we are trying to leverage uh, uh, all those strength points that we have against uh, the uh, uh, the Russians that outgunned our numbers. So that's why I, I, I cannot uh, say that we are we will be able to, uh, let's say, free the lands of South uh, from Russian occupiers, and especially given that the Russians uh, the, the, the they installed their units into the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant and they are uh, using and blackmailing the, the, the whole world. So that's why it's one of the things that will be restraining our operations uh, in, in the South. 
but anyway, uh, I, I, we haven't made any mistakes uh, from the military point of view because we were not driven by this uh, uh, you know, thrust of uh, victory and other things. And I believe that Ukrainian um, nation is, is waiting for some victories, but it's not so impatient to, 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 to push Zelensky and the military you know, to make some mistakes with the aim to have a good picture. Oh, let me then let me ask you: do, do you expect the line can be held in Donetsk so that you have this symbolic resistance in Donetsk, or do we have to possibly face the fact that Russia may continue to advance gradually in the east before we get to a position where the lines can be stabilized? Well, you know, it's very difficult to answer this question because I'm not a military strategist, I'm not a military expert, so I'm reading a lot of sources and I'm basing my conclusions, uh, you know, on that, on their opinions. Uh, but just to add to what Alexander said about the South, yeah, I want to, to add some more points, you know. The, the difficulty with liberating Kherson and, uh, uh, you know, other parts of southern Ukraine that are under occupation is that uh, there are a lot of civilians who are still staying there who have not, you know, uh, left uh, the, the region uh, regardless of the calls of the Ukrainian authorities to do that. And as we see, Ukrainian armies really factoring in, you know, this the thing that uh, they do not want to target civilians, to do harm to civilians, as contrary to what the Amnesty International claims in their report. There is actually no evidence to suggest that Ukrainians ever intentionally caused harm to civilians. Also because, well, as I said, Ukrainian army and Ukrainian civilians are, uh, you know, they are united by the same spirit of resistance. It's not like there's some two opposing forces uh, that do not uh, uh, somehow correlate. They have the same goal and everyone is working towards the same goal in Ukraine, both the army and civilians to liberate uh, the country uh, from uh, Russian occupying force. So um, that would be a major difficulty for the Ukrainian offensive, not only, you know, this uh, inequality in terms of manpower and the fact that counteroffensive is always more difficult than defensive operation, that uh, one needs much more manpower and weapons to go on offensive than uh, to uh, held the defensive position, but also the fact that there are a lot of civilians and how to liberate uh, those territories without causing too much harm to civilians will be, I think, a major a major issue. And uh, in connection to this, I think we can expect a lot of also um, disinformation operations and, you know, information operations exactly peddling this narrative that we have saw uh, now with this amnesty report that Ukrainians are doing harm to civilians, that the Western weapons are not making a difference, that we don't know where they end up. I think this really, uh, all these narratives, they emerged uh, as a con- as a consequence of really successful Ukrainian uh, offensive operations in some part of Kherson region, because Ukrainians managed to to liberate several villages there. So, the more su- successes the Ukrainian army has there, the more and more Russians and their assets in the West will try to peddle these narratives to somehow slower this Ukrainian uh, offensive and also undermine the support that Ukraine receives. So that said, about uh, the South on Donbas, the situation is. Of course, uh, different there because, as you said, almost all of Luhansk region is under uh, Russian control. They are trying to make some advances in Donetsk region, which are so far not very successful, but they are not successful also because Ukrainians are, you know, uh, making incredible sacrifices there in terms of human lives, lives of lives of Ukrainian military. Uh, they are holding the positions, for example, near Donetsk, like Pisky, but all this, like holding these positions, it 
requires really immense sacrifices. A lot of blood is being shed. A lot of Ukrainian soldiers are dying there every day. So this maybe not, it does not make the news. It's not in the headlines, but I think there should be the awareness also, you know, abroad that yes, Ukrainians are resistant, but the price for that is huge and it's growing every day. And what can make a difference is more artillery, more weapons, because Ukrainians do not have enough firearms to counter the huge artillery fire uh, incoming from Russian positions on their positions in Donbass. So while Ukrainians are holding those positions, much will depend on whether a lot of, you know, support arrives in terms of weapons, in terms of artillery. So uh, while I do not doubt the resilience and resistance of Ukrainians, the real variable here is the amount of support that Ukraine receives in terms of weapons from the West. And this will ultimately define the course of this uh, battle for Donbass. If I may just add a couple words about the East, uh, uh, I am native of Donetsk, now uh, occupied by Russia. Uh, but if you're talking about strategic importance, uh, southern uh, regions and Crimea is much, much important, more important than, than, than the than Donbass. Donbass is important in the only way because we have there the most fighting capable forces and Russians were uh, thinking that it's possible for them to encircle and to at least uh, uh, defeat the Ukrainians on the, on the battlefield. They failed to do this in various, uh, let's say, stages of this war. Uh, so uh, the East is important only as a, a bridgehead of Russia to advance further and further, because it's not the last uh, war with Russia, for sure. If Russia is in the same uh, borders that we see it now, with the same uh, political culture and th- those kind of uh, leadership that we see, uh, it's, it's going to be threat, existential threat to Ukraine for years to come. But if you're talking about the southern part, the Russians wanted to cut the whole of Ukraine from the sea, from both seas, Azov Sea and, and the Black Sea. And that's why Project Novorossiya uh, was uh, initiated in 2014, and it's failed at that time. So that's why we cannot allow Russians to hold uh, in Kherson region, because they will be threatening Odessa, Mikolaev, uh, and uh, the, the, the most important parts of uh, our southern, uh, let's say, uh, regions of, of Ukraine. So that's why it's crucial, important to achieve the victory or achieve uh, success in southern direction first, and then possibly in, in the east. And, and if you have a look at the map. For the Russians, it's much easier uh, to have this uh, communication and they, they have this uh, supply chain uh, to the east because it's, uh, we're neighboring. Uh, the uh, Donetsk and Luhansk regions are just neighbors of Russia. But if you have a look at the uh, south, it's just this, uh, the uh, narrow, I would say, like thermopylas, uh, the narrow ch- channel of uh, possibility of Russia to enforce their forces in, in the south. That's why it's much easier for Ukraine to control and to deny uh, access uh, of Russia into the southern region. So that's why uh, th- uh, the southern Kherson and the Parisian region are much more important than uh, Donetsk and Lugansk. Um, one thing I did want to mention is that uh, what Olga and Alexander are talking about with the crimes that are happening, the accountability that is necessary, right? This is happening every day. Okay, there isn't one day that goes by that something is not happening. And there, the Russians are admitting to it. Okay, Olga has a fantastic spaces that she does on Fridays. Okay, that we listen into 
Yes. Uh, so every every Friday, I'm hosting a tourist space uh, with the title, the general title, documenting Russian war crimes in Ukraine. And every Friday, there is a different topic. It can be filtration camps or forced disappearances or rape or crimes against the education system, crimes against the healthcare system of Ukraine. Uh, one of one of the recent episodes was uh, focusing on uh, the explosion in the penal colony in Olenivka, where dozens of Ukrainian prisoners of war were killed in what looks like a blast, like a terrorist attack, basically a blast orchestrated by by Russian uh, uh, mercenaries from the Wagner Group. So uh, I teamed up actually with some of my old friends from an NGO, human rights NGO called Media Initiative for Human Rights, who are documenting these Russian war crimes on the ground every day. They are traveling across Ukraine. They are speaking to people. So every week we have witnesses. We have people who uh, suffered themselves from these Russian crimes, uh, such as, for example, we had Ukrainian prisoners of war who have been exchanged, but they told us about their time in captivity, how Russians abused them, how Russians tortured them, how Russians um, ripped off their nails and put their fingers into their open wounds, just to make one example, you know, of, of what we are talking about in these spaces. And I think it is crucial, you know, to uh, bring these Ukrainian voices into the wider uh, international information space. And I see it as my mission in a way to, uh, you know, give a voice to the people who would otherwise otherwise would not be heard or would have less opportunities to be heard abroad. Because if you open any Ukrainian uh, media, you see a lot of these stories, but unfortunately not many of them are out there in the, in the foreign media. So I see it as my mission somehow to, you know, bring these people together to give, the, give them voice. And it's very important for me that these are Ukrainian voices. And also the fact that I'm collaborating on this with Ukrainian human rights organizations, because one might say, okay, they they are Ukrainians, they are like biased or whatever, they have an interest in all this. But no, in fact, like these people are on the ground. They care about human rights. They care about like providing, you know, the uh, actual picture of what is happening. And they actually criticize the Ukrainian government if there is reason for that. So they are not affiliated with the government structures. They are uh, professionals who've been working in the human rights uh, field for years and who can be trusted and whose expertise, in my opinion, is really the best that it is out there. Uh, that in comparison to some international organizations that we mentioned today, yeah, who clearly have, have an agenda. And there are, you know, so many levels and like topics to address on this, because while while there might be like a lull in fighting or, you know, maybe less news from the battlefield, this uh, war crimes and human rights abuses is something that doesn't stop, that is happening every day. Russia is committing these crimes and the human rights abuses every day. And I think it's very important to keep it in the spotlight because human rights, it's a universal thing. It's something that all people all over the world can understand, you know, no one uh, can be tortured, no one can be held without a trial, without charges on some, you know, on a whim, on uh, someone's uh, imperialist design. No one can be denied a right to life. So this thing uh, that can resonate, I think, with everyone in the world, in every country, and, and Ukrainians now are on the front line of, you know, defending these universal human rights. And that's why I think, you know, this Ukrainian struggle, it's so important for, for every person. And that's why it's important to keep the issue of war crimes, of human rights abuses in the spotlight.
Well, I completely agree that you know Ukraine is a really important is something uh, really important that happened to, to Europe and the whole world. Uh, I mean, we uh, we change the course of history of our own history, and we are providing opportunity for our neighbors. I mean, westward neighbors uh, to rethink. Uh, all those values and pillars on which uh, the, their, uh, let's say, way of life uh, holds. And it's so important to revise even activities of those organizations because we see that uh, the whole international organization ecosystem does not work properly. I mean, the United Nations and other things because, you know, we are fighting with the nuclear power as a permanent member of the UN Security Council. Uh, and we, we just Ukrainian an opportunity to rethink about the future of the whole European project I and mean, the whole liberal uh, world project. And certainly we would love to see Ukraine as a part of it and not just Ukraine. I'm talking about Europe whole free and other peace, uh, uh, including not just Ukraine, Moldova, Georgia, but Belarus as well. We should not admit this country run by the a dictator who is illegally uh, holding this uh, position, and certainly Europe should not be, uh, you know, uh, resting in, in in some clouds and thinking about peace until uh, we are not changing the course of history in Russia as well. So that's why we need to support all those movements that are uh, aiming at changing Russia. And uh, and then actually, defeat of Russia is in the interest of each and every Russian citizen because in this case they will have an opportunity to relaunch their state and to, to live a proper life and the normal uh, citizens not not imperials not 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 a cannon fodder like uh, they, they are now in, in Russia so that's why uh, Ukraine should be in the focus of uh, Western media and the Western societies uh, what's going on here might be a sort of example how to uh, strengthen the resilience and other inner uh, power uh, of, of the societies in the Western countries because, you know, uh, a lot of countries, a lot of societies, uh, they just think that everything for granted. I mean, democracy for granted, human rights for granted, but it's not. Peace is not for granted when we need to strengthen ourselves and there is an only opportunity to, to get to this peace is through strength, uh, through weapons, through uh, expenditures on defense, or through the cooperation uh, within NATO members and and those who are not lucky enough, like Ukraine, uh, beyond, neighbor, uh, beyond NATO umbrella. So we need to think about this. And, and the only way uh, how to preserve our way of life, our independence and, and, and security and peace in, in the uh, continent. So that's why Ukraine is important, not just for us, but uh, I believe uh, for our friends uh, westwards. Very well said. So we're going to say goodbye to everyone. Thank you, both of you. Just thank you so much. Um, yeah, because, thank you. I, I mean, having to cover Syria for years, and in the end, we really failed to be able to get accountability over Syria. Uh, you know, Ukraine, Ukraine gives me hope.